We're in Titus, if you would turn there. I was presumptuous enough to just say, I'm not going to do one-offs. I, you know, I just thought it's easier for us to just go through a book. So if you don't mind, we'll pick up where we left off last time. And uh, so we're in Titus, the first four verses. And let's go ahead and read that. But um, first of all, I would like to invite your attention to chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Let's go there. First, this is, as I read this book, this letter, um, the theme, basically, of this uh, powerful and pungent letter of Paul to young pastor Titus. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. If you would join me in reading aloud verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. You can join me if you would read it aloud. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, let's pray. My Father, my heart is prepared, O Lord, my heart is prepared to learn and to love any of your words. Your law is my counselor. I will be ruled by it. It is my physician. I will be a patient under it. It is my schoolmaster. I will be obedient to it. And now, O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. And now let's look at uh, chapter 1, the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So we learned the last time as we opened up this letter, Paul's pedigree or his identification, his self-identification. Actually, It was an identification given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we clearly conveyed in the scripture that it is that of not just servant, but of literally a slave. He is a slave to the pure and perfect master. And the admonition from the scripture uh, that we dug through last time was that we should not fear to be a slave or shy away from this language because while human masters in all of their frailty are less than who we should be a slave to, our God is perfect and we should never fear to be a slave to him. And when we grasp this truth, we are so much more 
ready and inclined to surrender ourselves to him as our great master. It is not a fearful thing. It should not be a fearful or a hateful thing. And let us not be conformed to this world in our thinking about this matter, but rather be conformed to the image of Christ and what God has to say to us. So we found that his pedigree is that of being a slave, but he's also an apostle. And we determined that the apostle is a messenger, a sent one. Many today like to take upon themselves or by the giving of some church leadership the title apostle and they, they garner all sorts of, of worldly praise and adulation and wealth it seems. Uh, this is improper. Uh, a true apostle is a humble servant, an ambassador, someone who is sent to share a message that is beyond his or her right in and of themselves to share. And so any pastor knows, any preacher knows that as we come to the pulpit, we come with the weight of truly conveying the truth of Scripture, what God has to say by the illuminating of his Holy Spirit, and not what we think should be shared. We're so prone as human beings to riding our hobby horses and wanting to emphasize or manipulate the message, but we cannot do this. We must be careful to preach what the word of God has to say as faithful messengers or, in Paul's case, an apostle that was sent to do this. And then his purpose, we determined, was faith, as it says here, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That initial, that initial place uh, from which everything comes forth good in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit and the things that we'll read about from the Scriptures here in just a little bit. But that, that, the sake of the faith of God's elect... God's chosen from before the foundation of the world and their knowledge of the truth. Just this morning I was listening to a pastor preach on the importance of teaching truth, of not being afraid of, shying away from doctrine, which is just a, a heavy word for teaching, for sharing the truth of the scriptures. Many people will say, and this pastor eloquently stated, they will argue that doctrine divides, but it is truly the great unifier. It is what gives us solid ground, firm ground on which to stand as a body of Christ and from which we learn to live our lives and to minister the truth to the community around us. And so uh, Paul's purpose here is that these these chosen believers, these elect, would grow in their knowledge of the truth, which accords, it, go, it goes with godliness. You cannot say, and this was the theme of, uh, that, we, that we read to open this portion from 11 through 14 in chapter 2. If you say you know Jesus Christ and you are growing in the truth about him, and you are receiving the whole counsel of the word of God as you grow in your Christian life, then it should clearly be seen in the way you think, which affects the way you speak and the way you act. So this, thank you. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I appreciate the admonition. Indeed, it is, it is 
it, it really needs to be the, the hallmark of the church, that we live what we believe. And so let's move on. All of this then is looking towards a fulfillment in a promise of God through the Apostle Paul. And I've called it Paul's promise, but really it's God's promise through Paul to the church. And we find it here in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. The hope of eternal life. If it is eternal, brothers and sisters, then it must be the true life. If it, if it outlasts everything else, then it must be the only true life that is offered to us. Doesn't that make sense? Let's think about that. Everything else will just crumble and be washed away or blown away. All that is left is the purity of true life. And here it's called eternal life. If it's eternal, it must be true. And what is true life? In John chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord Jesus said this, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. This is a familiar verse to most of us. That's why he comes. The thief is, of course, Satan. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or as one commentator said, or a translation I read years ago, overflowing not just halfway, not a half-life, not a life that's kind of approaching the top of the glass, but a life literally that's spilling over. This, in another uh, uh, alliteration, I suppose you could say, this is the, f- the fragrance of Christ. This is what flows out of knowing him, of loving him, of growing in him, of, a, of learning and living out of this true eternal life increasingly is that we smell like him. We begin to look like him. We talk like him. There's an increasing family resemblance that comes from this eternal life that is inside of us. So we we need to go back even to first mention. So in Genesis, you, you can turn there if you like or not. I'm going to read it for you in Genesis 1 beginning with the 27th verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth and God said behold I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth to every bird of the heavens to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life I've given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw everything and here's here's where I really want us to focus God saw everything that he had made and behold It was very good. It was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, pardon me, the sixth day. So this is the picture that we have been given of what real life, true life looks like. 
It was God's plan. It was what he provided. And so what we're looking forward to is really a restoration of Eden in all of its perfection. But even better, because in this restoration, there will be no vestige of sin left. No vestige of a sinful self-will. Our will will be completely overwhelmed by our love for God and the perfection of holiness. And so this new Eden that is coming is beyond any shadow. And we'll no longer have to fear a serpent in this garden who will tempt us away from the Lord. We'll no longer have to live in fear of our will caving in to some sinful desire. This is real life. This is true life. This is eternal life. And it does us well when we think on it frequently. Because when we don't, we've lost our finish line. We've lost our goal. We've lost what we're looking towards, what our heart most longs for. I have, just in way of an aside and a personal illustration of this, I have the blessed privilege, though it's a grief as well, of doing many services for people's, for families who have lost a loved one. And as I walk with them through this time, I am deeply reminded of my own mortality. I'm deeply reminded of my own frailty. And I, I long more for this real life, this true, overwhelming, eternal life and the freedom not only from death and the grave, but from my own sinfulness, especially. I long for the freedom from my own sinfulness. So this is the eternal life. And again, it does us well when we think about it and all of its richness and fullness as best as we're able to do through the scriptures. And then he goes on to say this. He says, he promises this eternal life. Let me get back to my passage of scripture in Titus here. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began in hope to look forward with confidence to that which is beneficial. It becomes our guiding light and it's promised. It's promised and we can trust in this promise in John chapter six in uh, verses uh, 37 through 40. The word of God says this. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. Oh, are you, are you filled with doubts and fears many times because you fail and you stumble along the way? You begin to have these doubts. Jesus says, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We can have confidence in this. We can have real hope. It's a promise from our God. And it's a God, it's our God, who never lies. He never 
never lies. He always tells the truth. We can trust him. His character is unimpeachable. His very existence is based on his perfect integrity of character. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Amen. Amen. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Everything in the world around us and all this pragmatism that's around us and the relativism, it causes us to doubt the character of God. We want to say, oh, that sounds nice and I want to believe it, but, you know, I I just don't see it. Friends, we have to learn to trust in the unimpeachable character and truthfulness of God and in his promises. Therefore, God's promises are the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11 tells us, the evidence of things not seen. And it was promised before time began in keeping once again with our first verse that we read in his choosing us before the foundations of the world. And this is what is meant by being the chosen, the elect, Oh, there's, there's lots of controversy about this particular doctrine among Christians today. They like to argue about it. But I cannot argue with what the scriptures say. It uses this language, the elect, the chosen. What more can it mean but that God has foreseen us in eternity past and he has elected these people that, that know him, that will be then his true children. We are the elect. Our hope of eternal life is also a strong motivation and an accountability for living out the truth that we receive. Living out, which is our main theme. Once again, we see this reiterated time and again. Now, if you would, would you, would, would you turn over to 2 Peter with me, please? To 2 Peter chapter 1. I want, to, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at an extended passage that pertains to this truth that we receive. Are you regularly receiving truth? Are you humbling yourself under this truth? Are you surrendering to it and living it out in obedience? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. His divine power, and he has all power, has granted to us all things. All things. Struggle with it. Do battle with it. There is nothing in your life in which he is not supremely interested. There are no details of your life that he is uninterested in. There is nothing in our lives that he just winks at. Everything is under his intense gaze and his intentional working. Has granted to us all things that pertain to life. There's that abundant life again. There's that eternal life and godliness. Living a life 
out of and through the character of God, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we speak here of doctrine again. That's, that's it. We're learning God. We get to know him as we read the whole word of God and we surrender ourselves to the instruction of community and the faith and pastoral care and teaching of surrendering to a daily life of devotional and reading and study and prayer through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We're going to look like him and be like him because one day we'll be with him. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, the purpose of the word, the purpose of the word, you may become partakers of the divine nature. A lot of people will look at this and they'll shy away from it because there's a shadow of prudishness about this, of, of being, and the Puritans get a bad rap, but you know, being puritanical about this and being out of touch with culture, being uncaring. no. No, to have this divine nature would be literally to be fully human the way God intended us to be. We've got it all backwards. To be truly human, fully human, and experience life to its fullest, we must gain more and more of this divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Don't you feel those chains? Don't you feel those shackles? The weights, they're constantly pulling at us, dragging us backwards again. In the world because of sinful desire. And so these, these are to deliver us from that corruption. For this very reason, make every effort. This is the Christian will exercised. You have the freedom if you are in Christ to do this. You did not have this before. And we'll see this from Romans chapter 6. But now, this is the Christian will exercised rightly, making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, conformity to a standard of right, moral excellence as defined by God. Virtue, and virtue with knowledge. Once again, let's engage our minds in the process of our growth. And knowledge with self-control or temperance, some older versions may say here, with self-control and self-control with steadfastness or perseverance. You've heard the doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, those who truly know Christ and are known by Christ, who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They will persevere, and their perseverance is known and seen and experienced and enjoyed by their obedience to the truth of the gospel. And steadfastness or perseverance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection this phileo, this love for the brotherhood, this sense of community that you should have within the body of Christ locally and the church worldwide. We share family ties, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. How well are we caring for one another? 
How well are we loving the world around us? For if these qualities, it goes on and says in the scripture, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ineffective and unfruitful. How many of us in doing a close and careful introspection of our lives would recognize that if we're completely honest, we're not really very effective. We've become so encumbered with the weight of the world and our own selfish desires that we've largely made ourselves ineffective. And unfruitful. We're not well attached to the vine. We're not allowing his life to course through us and bring forth that natural fruit that comes in him to keep you from being in effect or or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he or she is blind. And here's an important phrase that the Lord really stabbed me with years ago, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is the source of much doubt and pain in Christian lives. As a pastor over the years, I've had to deal with so many people who come to me and say, Pastor Eric, how can I know that I'm still saved? I have so many doubts. And at the core of most of this is the fact that they have not been adding to their faith through these precious promises, these characteristics that you see, these qualities that we've just read from here. So the foundation is weak and they feel exposed to the elements of the world and it's painful and it burns and it causes so much doubt. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. It doesn't mean you won't stumble, but you won't ultimately fall and be lost. You won't be destroyed. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When our faith is continually strengthened through received truth, we grow in godly, fruitful living, which increases our sure confidence in heaven. We all have bad days, friends. I have them far as a melancholic personality. I have many days when I get up and say, I'm surely not saved. (laughs) And then after two cups of coffee, I say, well, maybe I am. I'm not sure yet, but... Uh, but you, you know what happens. You wake up with, you're plagued by the doubts and the fears and the failures of yesterday. You're plagued by the, by the, the inconsistencies and the, the hypocrisies in your life. You're plagued by your failures, your sins. And the great accuser loves to just throw them in your face all the time. And he knows when the weakest hour in your, in your day is. He knows when to hit you full blast and if he can get you to doubt your salvation true child of God when he can get you to doubt this 
and turn your eyes from the precious promises and the character of God, then he has you in a place where he wants you. You become ineffective. You become unfruitful. So, I am uh, going to continue quickly here to the end. Paul's proclamation in verse 3. Let's look ahead there now. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. The proper time. Our sovereign God ordains all things in his perfect timing and way. I have witnessed to so many people over the years and my uh, theological roots were such that I felt such a great personal responsibility for the salvation of every person that I ever shared with or ministered to that I would go to bed at night haunted by the fact that I had failed to save them. I can save no one. You can save no one. You have loved ones who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you agonize over that fact? Do you fear for their eternal destiny? I share that fear with you, that anxiety, that weight, that burden. I pray every day for these people. But I have finally come to the point in my life where I am not going to bludgeon them with the word of God. I pray for them. When the opportunity arises, I share truth with them. I try to certainly live a life that conveys godliness, that lives out the truth that I believe, so that they cannot question the validity of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, for which I should never be ashamed. But it is God who does the saving. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens the heart and makes a clear passageway for the word of God to pierce with convicting power whereby then the will is freed up then, unentangled by sin, by the bondage of Satan, to then choose Christ. And there comes the choosing. Therein comes the choosing. Because now you have been given freedom to choose by the Holy Spirit of God. You obey this truth unto salvation. Glory to God. This is the proper time. God ordains this. Pray, trusting that God will do his perfect work in the life of every person that is dear to you that you're praying for, that co-worker, that neighbor, that family member that is precious to you. And he manifests this. It means to make known, to make it plain, to reveal, to bring to light a revelation through preaching. Fast becoming one of the most despised occupations in the world. Unless you're preaching a message that the world loves to hear. You're tickling their ears. Oh, there's no end to that. And they get applauded. And they make huge salaries and drive fancy cars around and they worship in huge centers where countless people come. And I'm not saying that the gospel can't result in huge crowds coming, obviously. We want to see that. But never at the forsaking of the truth of the word of God. And it is always conveyed in weakness. It is conveyed in the weakness and frailty of human flesh. And it comes with a burden knowing that 
that person can do nothing in and of himself as he preaches the word of God, but awaits the empowerment of God. God's ordained method of proclamation is despised by the world, entrusted to frail men who are called, equipped, and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And that verse that I just quoted a little bit ago, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the gospel that's available to all. And it's been entrusted. This takes us back to Paul's sense of identification as an, impos- as an apostle, an ambassador. Yet every child of God, a slave to our gracious master, is also called and equipped to proclaim the faith. And we proclaim God our Savior. This is a clear indication of our Trinitarian faith and belief. He is God our Savior. And it was entrusted here, Paul's aim was to entrust this and encourage this message from his protege, Timothy, or or Titus rather. And Timothy was the other. They were in a common faith with Paul and there's there's some deeper meaning to this. Timothy, Titus, Paul... These two young pastors were captured by Christ through their direct relationship and and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So as I owe my life to a couple gentlemen, George and Ed in college, who came and shared the gospel simply and powerfully with me as a freshman in college, I I in, in, in part, I owe my life to them and their faithfulness in sharing the gospel. So these men, in part, owed their lives to Paul. Paul, in 2 Timothy 2, says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and to faithful women who will be able to teach others also. Four generations in here. Who are you investing in? Who are you leaving a faithful legacy in? Certainly it ought to be your children your grandchildren. Titus had a history of faithful service under Paul's ministry and mentorship. He was here undertaking this difficult ministry on the island of Crete. It was not an easy place to do ministry like many places in America today and in the Western world and everywhere. And then he ends it with a benediction to this introduction and we're done. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Two of my favorite words that I sign off with on a regular basis. Grace and peace. The grace of God alone leads to salvation. We know this. May it not grow old and tired in our hearts and minds. This grace provides the peace of God. It's the peace that you long for today. It's the peace that you are yearning for that you are looking for. God ordained it. Christ carried it out. May this be the spirit and the nature of all our relationships. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for this manifestation of truth, of doctrine that teaches us to live godly lives in an ungodly world. Would you strengthen us, help us as we continue to commit our wills to learning more of Christ and manifesting your character so that those around us will see 
that Jesus is real, that he is powerful, and that he transforms lives for the eternal good. And may this fill our hearts and our minds up with the glory of heaven, that home that you promise to all of your children. We commit ourselves to this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.